Good morning. I'm Pastor Matt, and we're going to start a new series today in a very little letter near the back of your Bible called Jude. It's the second to last book of the Bible, right before Revelation. It is uh, approximately one page long in your Bible, but it is a single chapter. Uh, I'm going to have Zach and Haley Smith come up and read the whole letter, the whole book this morning, uh, to kind of get our bearings on where we'll go over the next four weeks. Um, I'd encourage you as you, you know, you hear this uh, letter read, um, is, this is one of the, it's a very uh, firm letter because it's a very tense situation that repeats itself in history. And so listen to God's word and uh, allow it to minister to you. And then we'll look at the first four verses this morning. Thank you. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who've been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and all the defiant words, ungodly ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, 
Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divided you, who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that by uh, your mercy that you would use your word today to build up the saints here. We pray those here who um, aren't Christians or maybe they're seeking, they're considering the claims of Christianity. I pray that this would be helpful uh, in their search for Christ. Uh, But we know one of the great theological truths, Lord God, is that you're searching for us first. And we thank you for that good news. And so we pray that you would call people to yourself today and through your forgiving and merciful grace, lead us to repent, to love you, to love others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So July 1st, July 2nd, and July 3rd, 1863 are the bloodiest days in American history. That's when the revolutionary, excuse me, that's when the the Battle of Gettysburg happened near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania where uh, over 50,000 people were either killed, wounded, or went missing. And for what? So historians will tell us slightly different accounts of the Civil Civil War's purposes. For many in the South, they were contending for states' rights against an ever-expanding federal government. For those in the North, it was a matter of constitutional principles that united a country as well as the end of racial slavery and human exploitation. And so fight they did. Many died for their cause and for their families and their sense of justice. For what are you willing to fight? Right? Should we fight whether the University of Iowa is better than Iowa State University? And pick your sport. Should we fight about the merits or demerits of the sitting president? Should we fight about the ravages of broken homes, drug addictions, and rampant consumerism? Should we fight about how to remodel a church? Should we fight about the rights of the unborn? The verses in the biblical book before us uh, say there is a primary fight that must not be overlooked before we even consider these other fights. There are worthy fights to be done in this life, but The fight that Jude is asking that church in the first century and now us to fight for will prepare us for all the other fights. It will give us the wisdom and the discernment to enter the places that God has called us to be faithful in the places God wants us to be, but to fight not only for the right things, but also then to fight in a worthy manner. So Christian, the call in this book is for us to contend for the faith. 
What I want to do to, to kind of bring this sermon home is just actually walk through each of these terms, Christian, contend, the faith. So we, we'll do it through three questions. Who is the Christian who is supposed to contend? What is the faith that we're contending for? And then finally, why? Why should we contend? So we're just going to do verses one through four today. Let's begin. Verse one says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So ancient letters would declare the author at the beginning. You know, we usually save it for the end. Uh, our, letters, our letter writer's name is Jude, and in the Greek it's Judas, so you can translate it either way, Jude or Judas. Um, we know that this is not Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. He hung himself around 33 AD. This letter is probably written 30 to 40 years later. Um, we get a little hint that it says brother of James. The only time in scripture where there is a Jude or Judas and a brother of James is uh, mentioned a couple times in the Gospels, one of which is Matthew 13, verses 55, where it says this. It's uh, the words of the lips of some onlookers of the ministry of Jesus. And they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. So who is our author? Well, he's the brother of James, and the two of them were raised in the same home as Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. Well, afterwards, uh, Joseph and Mary uh, ended that virginity season and started having children, two of which are James and Jude. Interesting, there's a Christian historian by the name of Eusebius who writes in the 4th century. He actually was aware of in the late 1st century they, that some of Jude's grandchildren were leaders in the church, and they were actually referred to as relatives of the Lord. I thought that was interesting. Now, what's fun is despite Jude's auspicious family heritage, Jude does the exact same thing his brother James does when he writes his letter. He just calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. I mean, if any of us are related to like someone remotely famous, we try to slip that into conversations. You know, my third cousin's twice removed actually on my wife's side uh, was, was, was a, uh, an extra in a movie with Tom Cruise. Right? Jude, doesn't, Jude doesn't do that. I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude, like every other person on the planet, had to reckon with the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? We actually know from the accounts in Matthew and Mark that early on, Jude and the rest of uh, his family thought Jesus was out of his mind. They actually wanted to bring him home. You would think your brother was crazy too if they were casting out demons uh, saying they were God, standing up to religious authorities of their day. But over time, Jude came to recognize that his brother was the Messiah, which is what the term Christ means, believed that he was the Son of God, and he put his hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us next who he's writing to, which is common in those letters. He says, to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. 
Now, unlike some letters where the author writes to a specific church in a specific city, like the, the Apostle Paul wrote to the, the Philippians who lived in Philippi, Jude uh, is writing generally. Sometimes these are called Catholic epistles. It's writing to the, a general church. Uh, either it was written to one church who was supposed to receive it and then transcribe it and send it on to another church, or maybe it was, you know, kind of like an email blast, you know, but, you know, a bunch of scribes wrote many letters and they all went out at once. Uh, What I want to focus on, though, is how Jude describes Christians to try to answer this question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And he uses three very distinct terms, called, loved, and kept. So what does it mean that Christians are called? What does it mean to be called? The best way to think of calling is maybe to compare it to that of the adoption of a child. Child might be born Benjamin Smith. But through adoption, they are often called a new name and called into a new family. So Benjamin Smith might be renamed Jeremiah Jones, has a new identity, new address, new family, new calling, It's also similar to the drafting of a college athlete. So when the Chicago Bears call during the first round XYZ player to be on their team, that person comes up, they usually either put the jersey on or they don't put the jersey in front of their chest. And for all manner and purposes, they are now a bear. That's their new identity. In all these situations, as it is in the Bible, the power, though, comes from the calling party. The adopting family brings them in. The franchise brings them in. And in this case, God calls people into his family. Next, Jude describes Christians as God's beloved. Uh, Sometimes English will say loved in God or the beloved of God. Uh, The Greek meaning is a little hard to convey, but the point is, is that Christians are deeply loved and cherished by God. In his very being, he has committed to love his people. Romans 5.8 speaks about the love of God when it says God demonstrates, right? he shows us his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for his people. He's going, he is love and he loves us. So Christians are called and they are loved people. And then finally it says they are kept. Sometimes it's kept by Jesus. Sometimes it's translated kept for Jesus. Uh, the word kept relates to protection. It, re- means, it has to do with protection. It's um, We're safe in the care of the living God. You know, in John 10, Jesus talks about that, you know, you're in the Father's hand. And no one's going to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Similarly, in John chapter 17, uh, Jesus, it's recorded there, this big, this prayer that Jesus makes for his people. And in verse 11, uh, part of that prayer, he says, I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them. Keep them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus' prayers get answered. He prays to the Father. Keep them. Protect them. This is a... This is an important promise in light of the context or the contents of this letter. The church that, and the, or the region of churches that Jude is writing are experiencing all kinds of hardships. And it would be very tempting for the Christians to feel like they have nothing to stand on. They're very afraid that they were going to get like sucked into the devil's snare. And he's saying, no, 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 you, you are called people. 
You are loved people. You are kept people. It's probably not incidental that it has references to past, present, and future. Called in the past, loved in the present, kept for the future. God is with you through and through. And as was common in letters, now he he just offers a blessing before he begins the main body of the work where he says, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Mercy, peace, and love. This is like a necklace with like three beautiful gems. And you're supposed to be just blown away. I mean, these are some of the richest words in the Bible, and he just puts them in one sentence. (laughs) God's mercy is his favor and kindness toward us. His peace is this well-being and confidence we can have with the Lord God. His love is a faithful, covenantal promise to give us goodness and grace. And so he's saying, no matter how challenging your church is, your life is, God is committed to bless his people, his called, loved, and kept people with his mercy and his peace and his love. But now he's going to get very serious, and he's going to get serious very quickly, because he needs to talk about contending for the faith. Let me read uh, both verses 3 and 4 before looking at the question, what is the faith? Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. I want to just observe two characteristics about what is the faith. The first characteristic is that the faith is an established body of truth. And then secondly, the faith is about salvation and grace. First, the idea that the faith is an established body of truth. Now notice that he wanted, he was, he'd been planning for a long time to write a letter. This has probably, probably happened to you. You, know, you. you want to write a friend or a relative, send an email. But then you hear that they're sick. Or you hear that something horrible is in their family. And you do. You just drop absolutely everything you were going to do. And you, and you, find, you call them. You write that letter because they're in a tough spot. This is, what Jude, this is what's happening with Jude. Jude was concerned for these people before. But all of a sudden, he heard that the message of the gospel, the truth, was being maligned and manipulated. And he, I had to write. And we got, you know, we got to talk about this issue, this main issue of the faith. Because this faith, he says, it was entrusted to God's holy people. It was given to you. Sometimes it's uh, translated, delivered to the saints. Notice it also has this very important expression. It says it was given once for all, which means that Christianity from the beginning believed that through Jesus and the early apostles that there were a set of truths not to be changed. They weren't to be subtracted from and they weren't to be added to. Once for all, this faith was given to the church in the first century and what we do from generation to generation is we pass on these truths that have been given to us faithfully without adding and without subtracting. There are some religious groups today that are often adding. Uh, some of you are familiar with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They have a, they have a living prophet, uh, the, the Mormon prophet, and he's constantly adding. 
adding teachings, adding truths that need to be applied and put into the practice of Mormons. Jude would say, no, once for all, the faith was handed down to the saints. It's also quite popular to remove or downplay aspects of the Bible that are no longer popular in the culture you're living in. So sometimes uh, there's been seasons where Christian, quote-unquote, Christian churches will like deny the Trinity or the divinity of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus. Uh, it's common to uh, kind of let ethical teachings come and go based on uh, a culture's particular uh, proclivities at the time. And Jude's going to say, no, no. The faith has been passed down and it's going to be passed down again and we don't add to it and we don't subtract to it. In the early decades of the Christianity, and this is important, so in the early decades of Christianity, the faith was preserved in the minds, hearts, and the lips of the apostles, the ones who had been with Jesus, such as Peter, Matthew, John, and Andrew. They would preach the faith, but eventually this faith was recorded in the New Testament. Some people say, I I really wish I could have been with the apostles for those 40 days uh, after Jesus resurrected from the dead to find out what he was saying. And I'm like, no problem, read the New Testament. That's what he was doing for 40 days. He was teaching them these principles. And then they preserved them in scripture. We have that teaching. We have what the church needs. Eventually, the New Testament was recognized as holy and authoritative as the Old Testament. And now we have what's the Bible. Uh, Billy Graham, you know, passed away a month or so ago. And those of you who listened to him when you were younger, uh, I did too, actually, um, One of the people remember what Billy Graham used to always say. He would say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, because he recognized that this book was the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. And so when you say the Bible says, it has authority. I was reading this past week about the various authors globally who love to take J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series and kind of write spinoffs or their own story. I also read about the vehemence in which J.K. Rowling and her large legal team uh, go to to make sure that her corpus, her body of work, is not tampered with. It's not added to. It's not subtracted to. Well, In the same way, what Jude is saying in the first century uh, for that church and now for us is we need to guard this book, this corpus that God has given. It is authoritative. When you subtract from it, you're taking away something that's authoritative and substantive. It'd be like taking away Hermione Granger from Harry Potter. You just can't do that, right? Nor do you add to it. You don't throw Scooby-Doo into chapter 17 of the Goblet of Fire, right? Guard the book. Contend for the faith. Because unlike, you know, an entertaining fiction series, this is the second characteristic. This book, this truth is about salvation. This is about grace. Verse 3 uses the expression that he was going to write about the shared salvation of believers. Just to, to treasure all the saving work of God that he has done on behalf of his people. And, there, and we share in that. That's actually what we do on the Lord's Day. We're sharing, we're singing, we're rejoicing. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, which again, it's a sharing in the salvation. We're remembering what Christ has done for us. In verse 4, Jude uses the shorthand definition of the gospel when he just says, the grace of God. And it's, you know, other apostles do the same. How do we summarize the Christian message? The grace of God. The grace of God. 
And so if you put the two, these two aspects together, the established body of truth is primarily about how people get saved through the grace of God. So a natural expression would always be, well, saved from what? Saved from what? The Bible speaks most often of us being saved from sin and death. So too, we need salvation from God's wrath against sin and sinners. Sin is our moral transgression against God and his holy laws. Death is the consequence for our actions. Death is our sentence, our judgment, and we totally deserve it. And God's wrath, unlike the wrath of um, fathers who've had bad days or fathers who've drank too much, God's wrath, it's a settled opposition against evil. He is, a, he is settled against opposing evil and bringing judgment. And in due time, he acts. I had a friend named Colin. His dad's name was Brad. And uh, one thing I loved about Brad is the guy never raised his voice. But you knew when Brad's wrath had cometh. Colin, could you come up and speak to me for a moment? it was probably more sobering than anyone who would ever yell. And this is God's wrath. It is a sobered and settled commitment to eventually and always bring justice against evil. This is what we, we Christians, have to be saved from. This is what non-Christians have to be saved from, the wrath of God. And how is that accomplished? It's through the grace of God. So our problem is God Naturally, then, the only solution, when your problem's that big, I mean, if you think about that, like, if your problem is God, your only solution could be God. This is why Jesus was fully God and fully man. That's why he's called a substitutionary atonement, that God himself had to take our place and die in our place, because we had a God-sized problem and we required a God-sized solution, and in the mercy of God the Father, in the willing love of God the Son, and in the power of God the Holy Spirit, through and because of grace and love, he saved a people. And that those who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is the gift of God. This is salvation. This is why the Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God and not by works so that no one can boast. So now it's at this point, though, we need to... Observe how the faith entrusted to God's holy people is being sabotaged among the Christians to whom Jude writes. Look again at verse 4. He says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, they've secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. First, I want you to observe, um, he is warning the Christians, the called, loved, and kept ones, about some non-Christians who have slipped in among you, which means that they are looking a whole lot like normal Christian people, or at least they started looking that way. Um, this doesn't just happen in the first century. I don't mean to insult you, but I assume every Sunday there are people here who think they are Christians who are not. 
because I was a Christian for a long time and I sat in, excuse me, I was a Christian, a professed Christian for a long time who sat in chairs uh, or pews and I wasn't a Christian. These people though um, aren't just unaware, ignorant, they are, they are dangerously deviant. He calls them ungodly. He says that they're condemned, which means they're on the way to hell. Uh, they're, they're not the saints. They're not the holy ones to whom this has been written. Instead, what Jude tells us about these people is if they've changed the one true faith or they've re, they're using the one true faith to excuse reckless self-indulgence. That's what they're doing. Effectively, these false believers are trying to tell people that God's free grace means that Christians can do whatever they want. Rather than preaching true Christianity, which invites people to trust Jesus, these false teachers are telling people to presume on Jesus. It's a big difference between trusting Jesus and presuming on Jesus. Calling out for grace and presuming on grace. Most likely you would have teachers, uh, uh, maybe some of these people were even aware of when the Apostle Paul had written in the book of Romans, that we are not under law, we are under grace. And so they read that, huh, no law. That sounds good. And 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 their flesh took that no law philosophy and they made it a religion. There was a 17th century pastor Puritan by the name of Thomas Shepard, He condensed such thinking with these words. Those who deny the use of the law to any that are in Christ become patrons or supporters of free vice under the mask of free grace. Those who deny the use of the law to any that are in Christ become patrons of free vice under the mask of free grace. One of the best summaries of the role of the law in the life of the Christian is actually done by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 8. Can can I preach that right now? No. I'll let you read it. Well, we'll highlight some points. Um, But go look at what he is saying about the role of the law in obedience and the work of God in our lives. One of the key things that Paul reminds Christians in the church of Rome then is that salvation in Christ is connecting them to the Holy Spirit of God, which then empowers them to live new and obedient lives. And that's the, one of the key ideas in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Those who are saved by faith are connected to the living God. And we're going to grow. And one of the ways we grow is God uses his laws. In the middle of this, in Romans 7, verse 12, he writes, So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. Paul sees ongoing value to the law. It is a good thing. Now, we, on the other hand, are sinful, and thus, the law, apart from Christ, is just purely condemning. It just shows us our faults. It's like the mirror. And this is why Jesus came to die. This is why he came to give us the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's just look at two verses in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. If you have a Bible, turn there. They might be behind me on the wall too, but it's always good to look in your own Bible to make sure I didn't, you know, cut and paste. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says this. It says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh... God did, 
So that's a key idea. So what, when the law goes out to people still in the flesh, it means unchanged by God, not born again. When it, the law goes out, it just condemns. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how white knuckle hard you try to get this done, it's just going to condemn you. And if you succeed for a while, it'll just make you prideful. <laughs> but eventually you'll fail again. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So this is that substitutionary death and atonement. He becomes our offering for our sin. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. So the sin that was controlling our lives and our bodies and our thoughts gets killed when you trust in Jesus. He condemns it. It's, it's done for, sort of, <laughs> But why? What goes on next? In order that, why did he do this? Why did he do this work in our lives? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the law by itself simply condemns. But when we have salvation through Jesus and the Holy Spirit alive in us, we now can obey God's laws in fresh power. And it says fully. This means uh, it's going to the heart of obedience. I mean, I remember being a child, so kids, maybe you were like this. I could obey my mom and dad very externally, but not fully. You know what I'm talking about? Matt, take out the trash. Yes, dad. A person who knows Jesus Christ has been changed by him. When the parents say, would would you take out the trash? They can actually obey out of love. God saved me from sin. God's renewing my heart. My parents are tolerable people. I'm taking out the garbage. Glory to God. It's talking about the nature of, it's not just this formal, legalistic obedience to the law. It's getting to the heart of really acting out of love. This is why in Romans 12 and 13, Paul basically goes and says, you know, what, you know how you obey the law? Love. That love is the fulfillment of the law. Here's the thing, good news. We're not just saved from the penalty of sin, we're also saved from its power. We're no longer in slavery to sin. We can say yes to God and his laws. We can delight in the law of the Lord, for it is good. Now, sadly, a spirit of lawlessness creeps into the church from time to time, and it must be rejected forcefully every generation. One such writer of recent vintage is a man named Sinclair Ferguson who wrote a wonderful book in 2016 called The Whole Christ. I want to read a slightly long response that he wrote about this issue of lawlessness. He writes, At one level, the problem is indeed rejection of God's law. But underneath lies a failure to understand grace and ultimately to understand God. True, his love for me is not based on my qualification or my preparation. That's saved by grace, right? True, his love for me is not based on my qualification or my preparation. But it is misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are. That's juicy. You can meditate on that. 
He doesn't accept us the way we are. He accepts us despite the way we are. He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. Nor does he mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us into the likeness of his son. And without that transformation and new conformity of life, we do not have any evidence that we were ever his in the first place. Hear this, those who profess to be Christians. If you live a life of sin and self-indulgence and are presuming on grace, you just might be as condemned and ungodly as the false believers to whom Jude first wrote. God's grace saves people through and through. Lives are changed at the core, and those changes, they begin to spill out in outward obedience. Let's go to this third question. We'll get to some application at the end. The third question is, why should we contend? And the two reasons to contend are this. First, we we contend for the faith because salvation is on the line. And then secondly, we contend for the faith because the honor of Jesus is on the line. And I believe the second reason is more important than the first. Why should we contend? First, friends, we contend for the faith because salvation is on the line. What we preach about Jesus and what is believed about Jesus will either lead someone to true faith and the security of being called and loved and kept with a godly life to follow, Or on the contrary, if we fail to preach the whole Christ, the whole Bible, and the whole truth, people remain ungodly and condemned. And so Christians, we contend for the faith. Second, we must contend for the faith because the honor of Jesus is on the line. So notice in the final sentence there in verse 4, where he says, They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. That term sovereign is sometimes translated master. It, it's the, or, it's the, the Greek root is where we get the English word despot. Jesus is the master of the cosmos, the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is reigning in heaven. He is the son of God. He is worthy of all power, glory, and honor. He is majestic. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one who sustains the universe. He is the coming judge to render his judgment on every being, human and angelic. Therefore, every act of self-indulgent is cosmic embezzlement. You're taking what God owns and has full privileges and using it for your own purposes. Why would we show such disrespect to the one that we love who came to die for sinners? Why would we spurn the grace of God to excuse our egotistic pastimes? Oh, friends, don't ignore what's written here in Jude or what what the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. He writes, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Most of you know this. I am married to an amazing woman. She's extremely gracious. She's very forgiving. She takes care of me whether I treat her with, uh, she, t- she takes care of me on my good days when I'm in a good mood. She takes care of me on my bad days when I'm in a bad mood. She's followed me on some pretty, uh, sometimes foolish adventures. Let me get serious for a second. 
I think I could do a lot of wicked things and Carrie wouldn't leave me. I think I could yell at her and call her filthy names and she'd still love me and forgive me. I could get caught up in internet pornography and I know she'd forgive me. I could establish an emotional entanglement to another woman and then confess it to her and I think she'd forgive me. I bet I could kiss another woman and she'd take me back. It could go farther and I think she would take me back. But why? Why would I ever do that? Why would I take the grace and love of a wonderful woman and spurn it? And my wife's dignity pales in comparison to the glorious son of God. I want you to picture, right, the first reading of this epistle. So thank you, Zach and Haley, earlier. But I want you to picture that first reading in a room that would have been uh, maybe a little more cramped household in the first century style. Um, correspondence wasn't that easy to come by. Uh, they didn't check their email or, an, or their iPhone in the middle of the Sunday morning service. Gotcha. Just kidding. Um, but what this was, this letter was written by Jude, delivered by some sort of uh, messenger or courier. Either the courier or maybe one of the elders of the church would have stood up to read the letter. I'm guessing there were four groups sitting in that room. First, there would have been the faithful Christ followers that were clinging to Jesus and walking in obedience. Second, there would have been various non-Christians, some seeking truth, others dragged there by family and friends. The third group would be the men and the women misrepresenting the gospel, living these lives of selfish indulgence and leading others astray. And that fourth group, it would have been the Christians that were being influenced by those perverters of the gospel. In their hearts, they maybe wanted to follow Jesus, but this, 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 the pleasure and the invitation to immorality, it would have been very tempting, and many would have succumbed to it. Well, I don't know which group you fall in today, but let me give just a quick word to each possible person. First, faithful Christ followers, press on, press on. Jesus has died for you. He loves you. Don't listen to the nonsense that's looking for something new and novel. Seek to honor Jesus by a life of obedience. Stand up when the faith once for all entrusted the saints gets attacked. Treasure that God has called you. Treasure that God loves you. Treasure that he will keep you. To the non-Christians in the room, I'm just sorry to say that there is so much confusion about what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. Sometimes I'll get in a conversation with someone saying, well, I don't believe in Jesus, or I don't believe in Christianity, and I'll say, well, tell me about the Jesus that you're talking about. Tell me about the Christianity you're describing, and it turns out I don't believe in that Jesus or that Christianity either. And so if you're a non-Christian, read the Bible yourself. Read it with godly people, people marked by love and mercy, who, mar- who have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those things. If they don't have those things, don't read the Bible with them because they might not have been changed by the Bible just yet. But note that the grace of God is offered to you and you may not get an opportunity to hear about this. So I invite you to come to Jesus as Master and Lord for he is good, he is good. And now to any false teacher or believer in this room, if you know who you are, (laughs) 
I want you to know that there's many Christians in this room that I think will contend for the gospel and ensure that you either repent and submit to Jesus or we will do everything in our power to remove your dangerous influence. This seems to be preserved. But the invitation that's later in Jude is repent and come back to the good news of a Jesus who is Lord and Savior. Be snatched from the fire And finally, to those who are strained because of false teaching, to those strained because your selfish desires have blinded you to the beauty of following Jesus Christ, I just say, come home, come home. Jesus' invitation in Luke 9, 23 is the invitation for us today. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Follow Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then I'd like to turn to the Lord's table. Father, it is uh, my prayer that wherever a person is this morning, as they're hearing this challenging text from Jude, that they would just do appropriate business with you, come honestly on what they're believing, what they're thinking, what they're doing. I pray that the enemy would not be able to manipulate the truth, but they could see the glorious God who saves his people through the death of his son. They would know the empowering work of the spirit that leads us to walk in in fullness, to fulfill the requirements of the law in a way that's filled with love and joy and peace, with new power. I just pray that we would know these things individually and that we know them collectively. This would be true of us as a church. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.